Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and you're Dr. Susanna Greer, aren't you? I am indeed, Joe. Every week, we talk with scientists about the most critical questions in cancer research, and this week's guest talked with us about genetic counseling. Heather Hample is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at The Ohio State University's Comprehensive Cancer Center, and she's an American Cancer Society grantee. So, Susanna, what are we fixing to learn about? Yeah, Joe, this is such an interesting area to me. So, Heather spends a little bit of time just kind of explaining, you know, what is a genetic counselor? It's not something I think that we're all super familiar with, so that part is really helpful. And then she moves into sharing with us, well, when would you need a genetic counselor in the cancer space? And kind of lays out a really nice pathway of generally um, you would be referred to a genetic counselor by your oncology team because what a red flag would be for your oncology team that might say, hey, um, there may be an inheritance piece to your cancer and, and we may need some help looking into that. And you may, Joe, be asking the question of why would that matter? Well, it would matter because what we have this huge advantage with genetic counseling is twofold. One, for the patient, right? For the patient that's undergoing genetic counseling, we can find out things about early prevention. We can think about changes in screening, and we can think about changes in actually treating cancer for that patient. And then think about all the folks in your family. So if you find out that you do have an inheritable cancer, you would want your loved ones to know about their risk um, so that they too could, could have more control in the cancer space. So this was such an informative podcast and Heather gives us some great tools, links to websites where we can learn more, and then also lays out at the very end, who should be thinking about genetic counseling? Um, so to me, this was incredibly uplifting and um, really very motivational. Thanks so much, Susanna. Let's get into it. Hey, Heather, how are you? We're so glad to have you with us today. I'm so glad to be here. I can't wait to uh, talk with you. All right. So let's let's start at a place I think we can we can all grasp. So just tell us, what what is a genetic counselor? I get that a lot. Um, it's a relatively new career. It's only been around since 1970. Um, genetic counselors are professionals, healthcare professionals that have been um, trained in genetics and also in counseling so that we can give personalized help to patients as they kind of make decisions about their genetic health um, based on things that might be running in their family history or health problems that they're having. There's actually around 5,000 certified genetic counselors uh, in the U.S. today. Oh, wow. That's a big number. I had, I had no idea. So, all right. So we're in the cancer space. Help us understand how someone who's trained in genetics and counseling is interacting with individuals around their family history and cancer. So what often will happen is that someone with a, a cancer diagnosis, uh, their doctor may note something about it that's concerning. For example, maybe they were really young when they were diagnosed, under age 50. Or maybe when they're taking their family history, they notice that there's several individuals in their family who've had cancer. 
or maybe the patient themselves has had cancer more than once during their lifetime. And these are red flags that the cancer could be hereditary. And so generally then maybe somebody's surgeon or oncologist will say, hey, you know, this, this is, I'm seeing some red flags here. This might be hereditary. Would you like to talk to someone about it um, to see if there's any genetic testing available that could be helpful potentially to you and your family members? And um, they'll come over and see us. So that's the, the majority of patients, the way they find us. Um, and they'll see us for an appointment where we'll take an extensive family history, actually, um, and look for those patterns that give us some concern that the, the cancer could be running in the family due to a change or what we call a, a variant in a gene uh, that's making this family or certain members of the family have a higher risk to get cancer. And if we do think there's a, a high enough chance that the family might be hereditary, we'll talk to them about what genetic testing is available. And if that's something they'd like to proceed with, we'll go through the risks and benefits and limitations. And if they decide they want to be tested, um, we can either draw a blood sample or actually you can even do genetic testing now with a saliva sample. And we'll send that out. Um, and a few weeks later, we'll have the results back. Okay, so it's a long path to get to you, but it, it sounds like a very direct path and a, a really incredible service where there have been red flags raised to someone. And as you mentioned, that might be somebody either on an oncology team, a surgeon, or somebody mm -hmm. that has interacted with a patient and that you are then kind of merging in that care pathway, looking for patterns, because you said you take a pretty extensive family history, and then you're going to share genetic testing that's available and help patients understand the uh, pros and cons of moving forward with testing. Okay, so what happens when, if you, if the patient decides, yeah, I'm interested in this, My, I, I'd really like to know the outcome of this genetic test. What, what happens after the test when they get those results back? So typically, um, we actually will call out the results because we've often spent an hour and a half with the patient before the test, so they're pretty well prepared for a positive result or a negative result or an uncertain result. Um, and so when we get those results, we'll give them a call, make sure it's a good time to talk, and then we'll review them with them. If we found, in fact, that they do have a change in a gene that has caused their cancer um, and is likely running in their family, we'll know exactly what cancers the individual and their family members are at risk for. Um, in most cases, there are some guidelines for how that individual and their family members should be screened in the future more intensively so that we can catch those cancers early when they're treatable, or in some cases even prevent the cancer in the first place. We will also talk about potentially how their mutation could affect their treatment from their current cancer. Some mutations give their oncologist ideas for ways uh, that they can actually treat their current cancer, different um, chemotherapies that may work better or treatments that may work better based on the underlying gene uh, genetic cause of their cancer. And then probably equally importantly, we'll start talking about who else in the family is at risk. Uh, most of the time with cancer syndromes, 
the individual's brothers and sisters will have a 50% risk that they've also inherited the same gene change and the increased risk for cancer, and their sons and daughters will have a 50% risk that they've inherited the same gene change and are at increased risk for cancer. And they typically got it from either their mom or their dad. Um, so depending on which side of the family it came from, we'll have some aunts, uncles, and cousins at risk. Mm. And so we start to help coordinate genetic counseling and testing for those other at-risk family members. Okay, so that's that's so impressive. I mean, everything you said from talking to patients who've undergone testing and helping to understand guidelines to eventually catch cancers early, maybe even prevent or, or change treatment strategies. I mean, all of this is pretty game-changing. So what a, first of all, what a great service and, and what a great intervention tool. I, I have a, a question around that. I know that you are really interested in a particular act. Um, it's called HR 3235. It's the 2019 Access to Genetic Genetics Counselor Services Act. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and why you are such a proponent and, and maybe why we should we should all be pretty enthusiastic about this? I would love to. So this is something we've actually been working on in the field of genetic counseling as long as I can remember. Um, I've been a genetic counselor for around 25 years now, and um, it is such a new profession that things as simple as having licensure are something that we are still working towards as genetic counselors. Not all 50 states have licensure for genetic counseling yet. And that sort of denotes a certain level of quality um, that when you go and get genetic counseling that the person has sort of met these certain criteria for quality and that you're getting good quality care. You know, even our, um, our uh, hairdressers have um, licensure, um, but genetic counselors don't in all 50 states. So we've slowly worked towards that. And what this bill, the HR 3235 um, Access to Genetic Counseling, Counselor Services Act would do is it actually would make genetic counselors recognized providers for Medicare. Mm. So believe it or not now, a large portion of my patients, you know, most of my patients over age 65 have Medicare. If they have cancer and their doctor refers them to me for genetic counseling, I actually cannot bill them myself um, for providing that genetic counseling. Uh, they don't recognize us as providers and would not reimburse for our services. So we'll often have to maybe um, work in a clinic beside an MD who will do the billing for the visit um, because we can't bill in our own names as genetic counselors. So it's, uh, it, it's really about access, and we want to make sure everyone has access. And it tends, once Medicare recognizes a provider, that Medicaid and other third-party payers follow suit. So this should give everyone out there much more access to genetic counselors. Okay, so I'd like to kind of pivot a little bit around the last thing you said, which is thinking about access and individuals where access to services from a genetic counselor are going to be especially critical. So maybe let's, if it's okay with you, I'd love to talk a little bit first about Lynch syndrome. So I know Lynch syndrome is a genetic disorder, and it does change. It increases our risk of lots of types of cancers. So could you help us to understand a little bit more about Lynch syndrome and 
maybe some of the differences between risk and reality and where genetic counselors can can really be instrumental in Lynch syndrome? Yeah, I'd love to. So I, I do most of my research actually on Lynch syndrome, so it's near and dear to my heart, and it's a condition that's really common. We think one out of every 279 individuals has Lynch syndrome. Yet 95% of individuals with Lynch syndrome are not aware of their diagnosis. So there's a huge gap here um, that's really important to close because these are individuals who are at increased risk for a lot of cancers. The main four are colorectal cancer, endometrial, also known as uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, and stomach cancer. But there's actually many, many other cancers that individuals with Lynch syndrome are at increased risk for. Those are just the top four. But the really um, important thing about those four cancers is that three of them are completely preventable. Mm -hmm. So if we know somebody has Lynch syndrome, we actually start their colonoscopies around ages 20 to 25, and we have them repeated every one to two years. So they don't love me when I give them that news, but it's extremely effective. When they go in with that camera, if they see a polyp that's precancerous, they can snip it out, and that essentially stops a cancer before it starts. So colonoscopy is one of our only screening tests that actually has the ability to prevent a cancer in the first place. The general public starts our colonoscopies at 45, and we go every 10 years. And that's fine because our risk is lower, they happen later, and it takes a long time in the general public for a polyp to become a cancer. But in someone with Lynch syndrome, their risk is much higher, they develop them at younger ages, and that polyp can turn into a cancer within three years. So we have to do those colonoscopies earlier and more frequently, but if we do, we should be able to prevent the cancer. It's really key to identify these people who have Lynch syndrome so that they can benefit. And then what a lot of the women with Lynch syndrome will do is once they're done having children closer to a natural menopause age, they may elect to have a preventative hysterectomy and remove their ovaries as well. And that eliminates the risk for both the uterine, also known as endometrial cancer, and the risk for ovarian cancer. And that is how three of the top four cancers with Lynch syndrome are preventable if only someone was aware that they had this diagnosis. Wow, that's incredible. So what you're sharing with us is that identifying Lynch syndrome patients can certainly prevent cancers um, and save lives. And these these statistics that you gave are just mind-blowing that one out of, did you say 279 individuals? Yes. yes 95%? Yeah, don't know their diagnosis. We think this just as common as the much more well-known hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome due to mutations in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene that many people have heard of. But this one gets a lot less press. So the gap between people who have the diagnosis and are aware of the diagnosis is much larger for Lynch syndrome. I think also people are pretty aware at this point that breast and ovarian cancer tend to run together in families. It's mm -hmm. not really very logical to think colon and uterine cancer run together. So if somebody's dad had colon and their sister had uterine, red flags may not be going off for them and their doctors that this could be hereditary because it's just not as well known. Yeah, you're exactly right. I was just wondering, what what's the difference? What's the difference in the gap? And you're right. Some of it is just media attention. Mm -hmm. Are there are there other places that you think that we are, we're not filling the gap and just kind of public awareness of Lynch syndrome? 
I think there's a little bit because of people not liking to talk about the colon or the rectum. And I think, unfortunately, that's caused a bit of a block for talking about Lynch syndrome, too. Our breast cancer patients are really motivated and active. And um, and sometimes, you know, family members with colorectal cancer find it a little embarrassing to talk to their family members about their diagnosis. So there may be less knowledge in, within the family even about people's people's cancer history. And so I think that's hurt us a little bit as well. That's interesting. I've never thought about it from that perspective, but you're exactly right. That that talking piece is really critical, which leads me to my next question, which is once you have had that referral to a patient who has um, shown some red flags to their oncology team and you've taken them through a series of decisions about whether or not to have genetic testing and they have the test and let's say they're one of those 279, it comes back positive for Lynch then you are going to help guide that patient through some decision making. So I, where those that talking and that talking to family members becomes really important. So one of the terms that's used in your field that not all of us are aware of is called cascade testing. Can you tell us a little bit what is that? Yeah, so cascade testing is what we do once we find out a family or an individual in a family has a hereditary cancer syndrome, such as Lynch syndrome. And that's where we start to test their at-risk relatives, like we talked about earlier. But the cascade piece is a really interesting piece because it's sort of the most logical and cost-effective way of kind of following the mutation through the family. Let me give you an example. Say we've just tested a woman with uterine cancer and discovered that she has Lynch syndrome. She may have a sister who has six children. Well, we do not want to start by testing all of those six children. We want to start by testing the sister. The sister is at 50% risk for having inherited Lynch syndrome. She has an equal 50% chance that she did not inherit Lynch syndrome and has no increased risk at all. If she did not inherit Lynch syndrome, she cannot pass it on to her six children, and they won't need tested ever. Mm -hmm. Essentially, her one test will clear her and all of her descendants. So we start with her, and if she's negative, we're done in that branch of the family. If she's positive, then we cascade, like a fountain, (laughs) down to her six children. And typically with cancer genes, we wait until people are adults because none of the screening starts till adulthood. So we typically test people at age 18 or older to find out if they've inherited the mutation as well. So assuming this woman's sister's children are all over age 18, if the sister's positive, we then immediately offer testing to the six nieces and nephews. And so on. And, and similarly, uh, an, another big area with where you might get a lot of bang for your buck in cascade testing is when you get to the aunts and uncles. You know, you may have an uncle that has a, a lot of children, and if he's negative, you don't have to test those children. But if he's positive, you follow the mutation down to his children. So we start with the closest relatives to the person who tested positive. Um, We often call them first-degree relatives. That's parents, children, and siblings. And then we move from those first-degree relatives that are close to the second-degree relatives like nieces, nephews, aunts, and uncles, and grandparents based on which of the first-degree relatives test positive. 
and even beyond there. Uh, cousins are actually third-degree relatives, but we will try to chase a mutation as far as we can in the family because once you've identified a family with a mutation, that's when we can be the most effective at identifying other people in the family who haven't even had cancer yet with a goal of keeping them from getting cancer in the first place. I often like to say the best cancer is the one you never get. And with cancer genetics, we actually have an opportunity to, to do that because we can find these unaffected individuals while they're young, figure out what they're at risk for, and implement this intensive screening or prevention options to keep them from getting cancer in the first place. You guys need a bumper sticker. So, <laughs> right? You, you genetic counselors need to get together and get a bumper sticker, and that's what's going to say the best cancer is the one you never get. That's a, that's, that's fantastic. Right. I love that. So, you know, what you just laid out for us in a really beautiful way was showed the, the strategy behind what you do. But another way to look at that would be that this really is kind of a form of personalized medicine. Is that yeah. something that you think about? I do, and I think even more so in the last few years. So something I haven't even touched on yet, maybe hinted at, was that um, sometimes your genetic tests can change your actual treatment for your cancer. So it turns out that um, in the last couple of years, there has been a lot of excitement about a new cancer treatment called immunotherapy. And this is medications that use your own body's immune system to fight your cancer. Well, as luck would have it, that therapy works exceptionally well in people with Lynch syndrome. Hmm. So that you really want to know if you've got a colorectal or a uterine cancer, whether or not you have Lynch syndrome, because they actually may change the way they're treating your cancer to use an immunotherapy option based on your genetic test results. Um, and because these results are starting to change treatment, which is the real definition of personalized uh, medicine. Um, we are starting to see more and more cancer patients getting referred for genetic testing at the time of diagnosis, sometimes regardless of whether they even have a family history or not. Um, a couple examples right now, all ovarian cancer patients are recommended to have genetic testing at the time of diagnosis. The reason is there's a very high chance they will have a hereditary cancer syndrome. We find uh, up to 24% of ovarian cancer patients test positive for a hereditary cancer syndrome, and it can absolutely change their treatment. If it's a Lynch syndrome diagnosis, we have the immunotherapy option. If it's the BRCA1 or 2 genes or some of that family of genes, there's a class of medications called PARP inhibitors that they use. So absolutely, um, we're, it's becoming more important than ever that our cancer patients get genetic testing because not only can it help them prevent their future cancers, help their family members not get cancer in the first place, but we may actually be able to treat their current cancer differently and have a better outcome. Ah, that's just wonderful. So I... I, I so much appreciate everything you've said around lunch and all the different kind of branches on this tree that you're tapping into from prevention all the way to changing therapy. Um, but before I let you go, I want to cast a little bit wider net for individuals who are interested in another cancer space. And I know that mm -hmm. You and your Ohio State colleague, uh, Dr. Electra Paskett, were actually recently awarded an ACS grant, um, but this one's on breast cancer. So first off, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, 
can you tell me a little bit about this, your interest in breast cancer and where you hope to move in this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so unfortunately, uh, it's pretty well known that there are some breast health equity issues um, with women who have um, women of African-American ancestry typically getting diagnosed later with their breast cancers and not having as good of outcomes from breast cancers. Right. Um, and so this grant um, from the American Cancer Society and Pfizer is really trying to close that gap. And it's uh, there are several awardees, and I think it's really um, exciting what everyone is doing in lots of different ways to try and close that gap. The way we're going to try to do it in Ohio is that we've targeted counties that have exceptionally big disparities in uh, outcomes uh, and diagnosis for breast cancer among African-American and uh, non-African-American women. And we're going to address a few things. One is that triple negative breast cancer, and that's breast cancers that have negative uh, estrogen receptors, negative for progesterone receptors, and HER2 new negative, is much more common in African-American women, and that is a poor prognosis factor. It also turns out that triple negative breast cancers are much more likely to be hereditary. They're more likely to be caused by mutations in the BRCA1 gene that we've mentioned today. So we wanna help African-American women in the counties that we've identified in Ohio um, to make sure that they are getting a good risk assessment. Um, mm -hmm. What does their family history look like? Do they need genetic counseling and genetic testing potentially to make sure they know what their exact risk is and that they're getting the proper surveillance because perhaps starting mammograms at 40 is not early enough for them based on their family history if they have a hereditary cancer syndrome. But even if they're at average risk, we want to make sure they're getting connected with screening services that are accredited and that if they have a mammogram and something is abnormal, that they don't slip through the cracks and they make it to that next step of evaluation and biopsy so that these, their diagnosis is made quickly and they get treatment quickly and efficiently and we get better outcomes. And so we're going to consider this uh, a win if we have um, more awareness uh, about breast cancer, about risk factors for breast cancer, about the proper screening for breast cancer based on their risk level, and if those women getting screened are getting the proper follow-up. That's mm -hmm. going to be a win for us. What do you say to people who are cancer aware as unfortunately almost all mm -hmm. of us are many of us will um, not escape cancer be it us or a loved one and we're just learning about genetic counseling and we maybe have questions about is it worth it is this something we should pursue um, how do we know if if risk assessment is something that impacts us like if we are are you know you've laid out some really outstanding examples of where genetic counseling is going to be pivotal. So if you have an oncology team that's recommended it, or you have been pinpointed because of cascade testing from another relative, or mm -hmm. if you are in a group who, who has been impacted um, by disparities, and we, we really want to think about kind of the sweet spot. But what if you're listening today and, and you just don't know, you know, what, what's your advice for all of us? 
I think that's a, a, a great point. And I think the other thing is that um, cancer genetics is not just for people with cancer. I see a lot of people who are unaffected, who are worried because of their family history of cancer about their own personal risk. And so I would say if um, somebody has a concern, um, seek out a local genetic counselor. Uh, you can find us actually at a website, www.findageneticcounselor.com. Uh, you can indicate if it's for cancer or maybe there's heart disease in your family and you can look for a cardiogenetic counselor um, nearby. But the red flags typically that I like people to keep in mind are early ages of diagnosis, multiple family members affected on the same side of the family with related cancers, uh, people having more than one cancer during their lifetime. Certainly one in three of us will get a cancer during our, our lifetime, so that's not unexpected. But if we get two, we start thinking maybe there's an underlying susceptibility there. And there I'm very careful that I, I don't mean someone who has a cancer that metastasizes to another organ or spreads or recurs. I'm talking about whole new cancers. So for example, a person who had both a colon cancer and a uterine cancer, that's a major red flag that they might have Lynch syndrome. Uh, if they've had a colon cancer that spread to their liver, that's not two separate cancers. That's one cancer that spread. So as people think about their personal and family history of cancers, if they have a lot of these red flags of early age of diagnosis, multiple primaries, multiple people affected on the same branch of the family, same side, those are the people that I think would really benefit the most from cancer genetic counseling. You know, I think in addition to our new bumper sticker that we're going to develop, <laughs> okay, right? <yeah. laughs> Best cancer is the one I you like never that. get. <laughs> it sounds like to me that what, as a field, if I just had to summarize in a, a brief uh, kind of statement, it sounds like what you bring is peace of mind. And I really love that. Yeah, I think that's what we try to do, you know, get people an accurate estimate of their risk and make sure that they're screening uh, according to that level of risk. Sometimes I see patients who have a family history of colon cancer. Maybe their, their mother died of colon cancer. We do genetic testing, and it's not hereditary. But guess what? They actually still need to start their colonoscopies earlier. They have to start at 40 or at least 10 years prior to their mom's age of diagnosis. So say mom was diagnosed at 40. Then they need to start their colonoscopies at 30. And they need to go every five years instead of every 10. So there is a lot to be gained from cancer genetic counseling, even if you test negative for the hereditary cancer syndromes, because the key is knowing your risk and getting the appropriate screening based on that risk. You know, so much of cancer is out of our control. And I think what I take away from everything you've said that this bit is um, our ability to reach out and engage with a genetic counselor is well within um, our our own control and our own parameters, yes. and I love that. So thank you. Thank you for all that you and your colleagues do. We're really grateful. Yeah, I think that um, anyone who has some concerns after hearing this podcast can find a nearby cancer genetic counselor, and I should mention there are telephone genetic counselors if there's not one nearby um, that do it via tele-video medicine. So at the website, www.findageneticcounselor.com. All right. Well, thank you, Heather, and best of luck. We'll, um, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much.